Hi, I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky, and I work with the Jesuits in Washington, D.C. As my wife would tell you, I am a compulsive Amazon shopper. A few taps of my thumb, voila! Diapers or granola bars or a massaging seat cover for the car show up at our house two days later. I wish I wasn't so bad at this, because I know Amazon is not a great company to put it mildly. Their CEO, Jeff Bezos, is the richest man in the world, and his lowest paid employees barely make $30,000 a year while facing some pretty tough working conditions in Amazon warehouses. What am I supposed to do with this cognitive dissonance? What wisdom does our faith have to offer in this age of mammoth CEO salaries and truly unfathomable wealth disparity? Joe Hoover, a Jesuit brother, writer, actor, and poetry editor for America Magazine in New York, tackles those questions and more in a recent piece for America titled, If Jeff Bezos Wants to Be Disruptive, He Should Listen to Biblical Prophets. Brother Joe joined me to talk about the piece and also his vocation as a Jesuit brother in honor of Religious Brothers Day, which is on May 1st. Thanks for joining us. Well, Brother Joe Hoover, thanks so much for coming on for a conversation today. Uh, how are you doing today? Great. Glad to be here. Thank you so much, Mike. And you're uh, up in New York City today? Yes. Um, I'm at America's offices in Manhattan, right? Mid- Midtown Manhattan. This time of year, I'm in D.C., this time of year like seems like uh, we have a little bit of spring, but then it kind of suddenly jumps to summer. Um, but I it's a nice season when you can get a, is it a, how's the spring been uh, in New York? Yeah, there wasn't really a harsh winter. So it kind of just bled into spring without a major shift. Um, it kind of sneaks up on you, but it's, it, it's okay. You know, you get like three days of really nice weather and you think you're in the clear and then it kind of all breaks down to wind and gray, cold and rain. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. We, we could spend our, our time talking about uh, the weather of the mid Atlantic and, and New York and comparing it to Washington where I am now, but I'm more interested yeah. in talking a little bit about this, uh, this piece you recently uh, wrote for America, where you serve as a poetry editor, uh, a piece about, at least when I saw the uh, online, I clicked right away because the headline grabbed me uh, the internet headline is, uh, if Jeff Bezos wants to be disruptive, he should listen to biblical prophets. Uh, of course, Jeff Bezos, the uh, founder, CEO of, of Amazon. So tell me a little bit about where the idea for this story came from. Uh, sure. I, I read in an internal communication um, basically, I read a person who said that we shouldn't rejoice over Amazon being pulling out of the New York H2 headquarters <coughs> uh, deal. Amazon had basically been scouring the country looking for a place to build a second headquarters, and they decided to do two of them, and one of them was in Long Island City, which is a part of Queens in New York City. And... So the state of the governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio made this deal with Amazon, but there was a host of issues with it. And I can get into those later, if you'd like, um, that community folks came up with. Um, and eventually Amazon extraordinarily pulled out of the deal. Um, and so someone said, should, you know, it, it came up that, yay, this is good. Or is it? And someone said, we should not rejoice over this because a lot of people are going to lose jobs so that other people 
can maintain lower rents because the thought was that if Amazon comes in to Long Island City and brings in all this workforce and uh, upper middle class or upper class folks, it'll create um, housing shortage and um, rents will go up like happens all over New York, gentrification. So that just kind of got me going. There's something seemed wrong about that, this idea that we should not celebrate that people will lose jobs so other people can have lower rents and um, so other people won't have their rents raised. So I wrote this piece just to kind of respond and I wasn't even sure if it was going to go anywhere. It was almost just for myself to try to understand what seemed to me a, a oversimplified um, take on this issue. Yeah, I mean, that had been in the news a lot, obviously, there in New York and nationwide, and they're building one of their you know, second headquarters here in the, the D.C. area. Um, and and right, as you're describing, there is sort of this at first uh, some, you know, it's a, like a lack of clarity. You know, how are we supposed to respond? Is this something that, as you're saying, is is good, worth celebrating that this deal is, was damaged? Or again, is this actually going to kind of harm us long term and kind of having that sense of, you know how, you know how good is a large corporation for a community? Uh, the, how good are those tax breaks that they get to, to come into a place? Does that really help uh, standard of living for people? Does it make it a better place to be? Uh, and so, it sounded like you again, kind of did at least uh, in the piece a little bit of trying to explore both sides of that. Uh, so, where do you bring the you know the tradition of the biblical prophets into that conversation? Where did that idea come from to kind of put the question of a corporate behemoth like Amazon in dialogue with the Hebrew prophets? Uh, yeah, that, that's a great question. I, when I was a novice, we had this teacher who taught <clears throat> what he called Hebrew scriptures. I mean, it is Hebrew scriptures, but he made very clear not to call it Old Testament, um, but Hebrew scriptures. Um, and he's, we read Abraham Joshua Heschel's the prophets and the introduction to the prophets his book about the prophets obviously basically said that the, the prophets are their expectations for how humans should live together and the kinds of resources we should have and how we should treat each other are far higher than we would even think acceptable that they're outraged over the smallest injustice and so what seems to us to be business as usual and the kind of wages and corporate deals and waged um, salary disparities between a CEO and his lowest paid employees that seemed to be, well, it's just the way business is done. The profits would find to be so completely outrageous that they cry out to God for rectifying this injustice. So, um, so I just wanted to bring that into the, uh, the conversation with, with what happened in New York, because again, to a lot of people, it seemed that Amazon had promised 25,000 jobs and all of this economic, you know, uh, input into the city of New York, it would, you know, affect the economy positively over the long term. But there were so many drawbacks to that deal that the trade-offs felt like, well, we just have to accept these trade-offs because that's the, the cost of doing business with someone who's going to promise long-term benefits. 
but what the Hebrew prophets, what the Old Testament prophets said is, we don't have to accept this. And God cries out for justice around these issues. So, um, so anyway, that's where the prophets came into, into play. Yeah, no, I, I love that dialogue and taking, you know, the, those great, those great books and the writings of you know, a bunch of uh, people rooted in their own community and, and applying them now at this, you know, the sense that we have is, you know, people of faith that the, the word of God is a living thing is not just meant for the specific community in which, you know, it was written, but has a lot to say to us today. Uh, and I, at least from the little I know of, of prophets, it seems like often kind of take on two roles that you think of prophets, both like kind of uh, comforting the afflicted. I think of like Isaiah talking to, um, to the folks in exile, the Babylonian exile, and offering them God's comfort uh, when they are suffering. But then the flip side of that is when they're comfortable, uh, when they're doing pretty well, is afflicting the comfortable. So comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And I guess you could uh, you could say that uh, in our 21st century market economy here in the U.S., uh, we're, we're generally pretty comfortable and maybe could use some afflicting. Yeah, I mean, Amos, like all the afflictors of the comfortable you know, he's basically saying um, the people offer phenomenal, <clears throat> excuse me, sacrifices to God, <clears throat> excuse me. And God is saying, don't give me your sacrifices. Give me justice. You know, let waters roll down like justice, but justice roll down like waters and might righteousness like a mighty stream. Um, treat your neighbors well. That's what the sacrifice and the oblation that I want. And so he's always comparing the wealth of the rulers with the poverty of the poor and saying, this is insane. And you're waiting for the Sabbath to be over so that you can get back to your crooked deal making. Um, so that's, and they're always trying to call the Israelites back to their original covenant. The Israelites make a covenant with God they go away from it. The prophets call them back. They forget it. They go away from it. The prophets call them back. I'm, I'm imagining, though, say Amos comes to visit me in my very comfortable 21st century American life and is you know bringing some of this, uh, trying to get me back to the basics. And I'm saying, you know, Amos, like I hear what you're saying, but like I, I'm trying. You know, we we have two young kids, my wife and I, and we're, we're doing our best to raise them well and. Um, and we, I just really need diapers, right? I need diapers fast and Amazon brings it to me, the diapers in two days with free shipping. Uh, and I just push a button and, you know, I'm doing my best, but I really need this. I mean, this is just so incredibly convenient and so helpful. Like what, what does Amos say to me? You know, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, to be honest, um, I think sometimes people can, take a biblical text and apply it so directly to a specific situation that happened thousands of years later and say, this is exactly what you should do because the prophet said this based on this specific thing. Is that the case? Um, that we can take every instance of modern human life and take an exact Bible quote and give us a clear answer for that situation. It seems what the prophets do, I don't think so. It seems what the prophets do is first and in the least awaken 
what Walter Brueggemann calls the royal consciousness or the numbness to at least begin to ask the question, is this okay? How about we start with that? Is this okay that this corporation CEO is worth a hundred and sixty-three billion dollars, and his lowest employee-paid employees make thirty-one thousand. I mean, starting there and considering the um, automation and the metrics-driven factories, or or I should say, fulfillment centers that um, move their freight and stock. Starting there with the um, kind of piercing this consciousness of just this is the way things are done is a pretty good place to start. Hey, my credit card, up at least up until I wrote this article, has an Amazon, you know, rewards purchase. So I spend so much money, I get so much thing on Amazon. You know, I didn't really think about Amazon until I started writing this. I got an Amazon gift card from America for my birthday. You know, so can one fully detach themselves from modern society such that they can never... I had this piece in the article, um, which got taken out because of length, but there's a sense that you cannot, we cannot criticize modern society or a corporation or anything because we use their services. Therefore, the only person who is legitimately under this um, criteria, who can like legitimately criticize any social or economic or financial or business institution has lived their entire life on an ice cap <laughs> in the Andes and has no, utterly no trade and commerce with any human organization you have to be under some people's, you know, guidelines so pure still as to be able to, to, con to, to, to criticize, you know, it's impossible. And that keeps people sometimes from calling out and saying, yeah, we're all compromised. We are all part of this, but that doesn't mean that I can't still call you to something better while I use your product. So, you know, there's, I think for me anyway, there's some things where just like, I can't part like, Mentally, I'm like, okay, I don't like this and, and so on. But then it, there comes to a point where I just like physically can't participate in it. You know, um, one example for me is, pro, is football. I mean, I just, you know, thought about it for a long time. And then just, I got to a point where I, I cannot watch it. I can't give my attention or my, you know, time and be complicit in this, which is destroying people's brains and leading to suicides and, and you know, um, I know uh, I have a Jesuit friend who said he stopped using Amazon a while ago. Um, he just got to a point where he couldn't do it anymore. Am I personally there? I don't know. I mean, but I don't think one has to be completely detached from a human institution to be able to criticize it. That's my opinion. Others might think differently, but I, I mean, maybe we should, you know, um, you vote with your feet, as they say, uh, boycott the grapes of Cesar Chavez. Um, and there may get, get to be a point where people do that, but still, you don't have to be completely pure of that, of tainting ourselves with commerce, with an institution to say, wait, this is not okay. How you sure. I, I think sometimes too, like the, the flip side of then like applying some, uh, 
you know, biblical justice. So if we, I think we can say like, oh, you know, this doesn't actually really apply today. And so we can kind of distance ourselves versus the, you know, the other end of which like every single thing we have to take very literally and apply. But I think you're in your piece, you do, you kind of sit in some of that, that messiness uh, of just like not never being entirely sure, like that, that kind of sit in some of that tension. Uh, and you even, you refer to like this character, you call to mind of the, the radical college, you know, sophomore in the, the basement writing in a, you know, college newspaper. Uh, and kind of at first, it seems like you're almost dismissing that, like, you know, oh, this is an immature view of the world. You just don't understand how the world works. But then toward the end of the piece, you you kind of resuscitate that voice and that figure and say, maybe we should kind of tap back into that like young radical voice um, every once in a while, at least, because there's maybe something pure in that. Um, so what, what do you have? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Because there is something less compromised or there's a clearer vision that things don't have to be this way, you know, and we get to the point where we have two kids and are trying to buy diapers from Amazon. We're caught up in the middle of it. That's, that's a reality that that person has to figure out. But there is someone else on the outside of that's looking at a bigger picture says, this is not okay. Things don't have to be this way. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we do lose that idealism and it's not all entirely impractical sometimes doing the right thing and justice is more practical you know um so no i don't dismiss that college sophomore i've definitely been that college sophomore um and um so no i i t- totally resuscitate yeah and that. i you know myself kind of feel you know, feel that tension for sure of my own life. And, you know, describe that diaper uh, seeking father is me and my wife. You know, we, that's, that's our life right now, uh, especially in the midst, we're in the midst of a big move, uh, picking up our, our family and moving for uh, down to DC for the, this job at the Jesuits. And um, there is that, you know, that sense of how do we continue to kind of work for justice while being in the middle of that. And I, I definitely hear it now, like, especially like in conversation around political elections, you know, the upcoming like presidential election has already started kind of in, in full swing. And at least some of the, I think some of the, the candidates who have come up have been ones maybe who would kind of say like, oh, well, we're, we're we don't want to change the system too much. We kind of just want to go along with how things are have been going and then others sound to me more like uh profits and their approach of like the, the system is broken uh we need to radically rethink the system and maybe restructure it and i just see you have such like that variety uh of approach uh, in the political system in addressing things is do we just kind of make these small incremental changes or do we have to like really go for broken really reshape how things are done do we have to like if amazon's not going to voluntarily change then like we need to change the laws to you know to compulse them to change like to make it uh so they don't have any choices right no yeah i mean that's look i think if again i i I did think through a lot of this in the piece there's a sense of like well if i call for something too radical there'll be a backlash and then we'll it'll hurt the very cause that I'm trying to support. And if we think seven steps ahead, we'll just never get anywhere. I mean, an elected leader does what they do in the world in which they exist. I'm not an elected leader. They negotiate, they cut deals, they make compromises. That's their world. I can't imagine what, what I would do in that world. Thus, I have to make my own compromises. 
I have to live in the world that I live in, you know, and, um, and call for the things that seem that my conscience can't, can no longer take, you know? Um, and I mean, I don't want to get into politics, but I'll just notice that there was a major shift in how we look at the rich and the poor such that Bernie Sanders called out Amazon on their wages and they did raise their wages and they responded to him on that. Now, again, they raised their wages to the point where someone can make like 32000 instead of 28000 a year. But the general national consciousness and our expectations for what we can do were raised. The fight for 15 was started with fast food workers in New York. Actually, an organizer that I used to know, John Kest, who died a few years ago. He used to work for Acorn where I used to work, um, and then New York City Communities for Change. He put together people with an organizing group that you can't organize fast fast food workers. It won't work. They're all transient. They're high school kids, whatever. He went against the prevailing wisdom and says, no, you can. And so that fight fight for 15 movement, which has become a nationwide movement, started with an organizer saying, let's go against prevailing wisdom and start at the grassroots. And that's where it built to the, to the movement that it is. And it's a, it's a national catchphrase right now, you know, the fight for 15, 15 minimum wage. <clears throat> so I just think one has to organize and operate and call for and agitate or write or make political, you know, choices where they are. Um, and, you know, we all do it poorly. I mean, that's why we're sinners and Catholics who believe that we're fallen and we're sinners. And if we were God, we wouldn't need God. If we did everything perfectly, we would, you know, if we weren't compromised in some way and try to be so perfect and pure as to be like God, then it's, you know, then we wouldn't need God. So um, at, at some point, there's some things that we simply won't do. And we, we, we all know what that is, that some things that we won't um, have any truck with. And our conscience and our consciousness will move through in any number of issues um, for those things that we won't, we just won't put up with. And it's, it's expanding those. Yeah. Those but I, I guess things, I think too I about, you know, your kind of maybe call to, to, your, to us or the faith community or, or even kind of considering your own role in, in writing this piece is that we are, again, as people of faith, if we were baptized as priest, prophet, and king, like the role of the prophet, that's part of our vocation, like a common vocation, right? That we're supposed to kind of call out those things and um, to have that yeah. consciousness to say that something is not right. Even if the, again, the, the culture would suggest that, no, this is just the way things go, but to kind of step out and to say, you know, this it shouldn't be this way is an important articulation, even if the, well, what's the grand alternative? It's like, well, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, to, to start with that and to call it out, it shifts the, the window, right? It kind of shifts what we can even talk about, which I, I see in Fight for 15. Like that would, that seems so, the idea of that, when that movement started, that everyone, you know, the minimum wage would be $15 just seems so like 
you know, impossible, right? Because it just seems so far away and so distant from what we had. But then we've seen through, you know, through the activism and then the politicians responding to the activism that the window moves about what is seen as possible. Uh, and the, the, some of that prophetic, this is not right, this is not fair to families and working people, um, it, it shifts, again, our approach and can, can really start to change things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, look, I do this poorly, you know, I mean, what, what am I willing to, to speak up about? Um, and, you know, there's different ways to do this. I mean, sometimes some people are called to head on, direct, issue oriented, calling out things that they see as wrong. And that's, and they're good at that. And they write policy papers, or they make sermons, or they write articles like mine. My own tact is not typically like that. I don't write a lot of straightforward so-called social justice pieces that try to call out something. For me as a writer, or as a, I write plays also, it's just to kind of get into the issue and name the untruths or the hypocrisies on any side of an issue and say, well, are we being straight with ourselves? Where are we kidding ourselves? You know? Um, which has its own way of advancing the ball down the field. Um, and it's, you know, not being afraid to name the truth and name the best arguments of the other side, because if there's not a dialogic sense, if I can't give the best arguments for the other side, then I'm afraid of the other side. And I don't believe entirely in my own position. So, you know, I'm no, you know, so, I could constantly say, though, on the other hand, well, I don't understand economics. I don't, it's, it's very complex. And I, I don't, you know, who am I to speak up about these complex social and economic issues? Well, who are you not to, you know, who are you not to do those things? Because, you know, people know where they're being screwed over, for lack of a more polite word. And they don't need an economics degree from the London School of Economics to know that things are unfair, you know. Um, so listening to people where they're at, taking note of what's going on in the, in the world, um, sometimes is enough. And trusting that our intuition and our, you know, the call that we've been given. But the other thing is that for the spirituality of the Jesuits, of Ignatian spirituality, it is about discerning. Um, and so while we can call out hypocrisy and, and agitate for social justice, the ways that we do that are the things we're not to be, we're, we're not to be attached to the answers as if we are gods and know with such clarity what should be done and that God can work through anything, you know, even the most surprising of people um, and the most surprising of circumstances. So no one is beyond hope. No $163 billion <laughs> corporate Titan is beyond hope, you know, um, nor I, nor sure. I with my own thoughts. One word you use to describe uh, that 
at least a self how this uh, corporate titan uses to describe himself or at least thinks of himself or the way media might is a, as a disruptor that's like a word i think often used especially in you know, kind of silicon valley tech related entrepreneurial stuff is that we want to come in and disrupt a particular market uh, as in to, to change the way things are done and i think amazon offering like kind of for instance, like free two-day shipping for most things is like one way that they you know, try to do that. And uh, but you kind of reflect on that word a little bit and, and say, well, maybe this isn't really real disrupting. Uh, so think about, just talk about that word and what that word means to you and, and how you see, like maybe like, yeah, the prophet says disruptive. Well, no, I mean, I think, look, you've got companies that will give great vacation benefits you know, healthcare, ping pong tables and free M&Ms and, you know, uh, you know, beanbag chairs and beautiful campus. But what they won't give their employees is actual power. That's the thing that no one wants to relinquish. So few companies will actually encourage, um, become a cooperative, for instance, or give them actual say in how policies are run, economic democracy in the workplace, so I can be as nice as anything to you and give you all the benefits that you need. But when it comes to giving you actual say in how things are run, I ain't going to do it. I'm still the one in charge and determining what you get and what you don't get. So a true disruptor in sort of really world-shaking ways would be willing to decrease in power, which is so against human nature that that would be revolutionary. And, you know, there was a, on a small scale, the Jesuits have a place on a lake in Wapaka, Wisconsin. And right next door is this guy who's got his own house on the lake. And so, you know, we're upper middle class, you know, people as well um, with our own lake houses. But, uh, and he said he, he encouraged his union, his, his employees at his uh, furniture factory to start a union. Who does that? You know, he operated right out of Catholic social teaching. There was a CEO a lot long ago. I can't remember. We could probably look up the company who raised his employees wages by like a hundred percent or something recently. Um, you know, but, but the actual diminishment in power so that, you know, I will, I will decrease so you can increase. It just isn't done because the things I give to you are on my own terms, but not on yours. Um, that would be true disruption is to relinquish power so others can have more. Right. You, uh, you quote from uh, Mary of Nazareth um, <laughs> in the Magnificat, again, that, that prayer after uh, the visit, uh, after the Annunciation, when she you know says, uh, this is a God who casts down the mighty and lifts up the lowly and sends the rich uh, away and fills the hungry with good things. You know, and it's almost as if uh, our folks in power in business and government uh, don't take that very seriously. <laughs> Even ones who would be, uh, again, self-proclaimed uh, believers. Again, it's interesting to me in some ways that we can have that distance from biblical prophets like Mary uh, who, who call us to these things and say kind of fundamentally and plainly, um, this is true disruption. This is who God is, who turns everything upside down. Uh, and, and yet, again, when we're threatened by that, we can kind of uh, keep that at an arm's length. Uh, so, so I think so, I just really appreciate you, Brother Joe, sharing uh, some of this stuff in in the piece. And I think big questions for us to think about as you know, folks living in 21st century uh, market economy with elections coming and thinking about how do we just 
what kind of community do we make uh, together, uh, both on small scales in our own neighborhoods and towns and large scale uh, in, in country. And so I think some real good questions for us to, to examine. So I appreciate that. Uh, before we before we head out, I, I do want I wanted to Thank ask you. you a little bit about um, what your, your work at America. And then also this this week, uh, we're celebrating uh, Religious Brothers Day. That's on May the 1st. Um, so it's kind of celebrating religious brothers and I, am not sure if everyone knows, and I just have relatively recently learned that, that Jesuits, in addition to priests also have brothers. So I want to ask you a little bit about, um, what it means to be a religious brother. Tell us a little bit about your vocation, uh, how you, you know, arrived at, uh, at the society of Jesus and, uh, and then maybe a little bit about what you do at America. Sure. Sure. So, um, you could say that every brother, every Jesuit for 10, 11, 12 years is like a brother until they're ordained, if they're ordained. Brothers just keep it that way. So we are just plain and simple Jesuits and don't need to be priests. Priesthood is another vocation within the Jesuits. Brothers are simply Jesuits um, and that's enough. And Ordained ministry is an additional way of being a Jesuit. So brothers' ministry is their daily work. Guy Consolmagno's is to run, is to be an astrophysicist and to run the Vatican Observatory. And mine is as a actor, playwright, and journalist at America. I'm a poetry editor. Um, I was on the priesthood track, the scholastic track for nine years, and then um, I realized I had no desire to be to do ordained sacramental ministry. Um, and I wanted to be just as I was a Jesuit and um, to be supported by the community and to operate in the world as a Jesuit, to make my work in the arts, um, my equivalent of ordained ministry. Sure. So ha had you been involved in the arts before coming to the society? Is, is that, yeah. Yeah. I've been acting and writing for years. Um, and then the society has encouraged it. They've been very Yeah, supportive. I think about, you know, kind of one of the Jesuit catchphrases you hear a lot is, you know, finding God in all things. And it's kind of this sacramental imagination that, you know, seeks out the divine and can encounter God through through the arts. And is that something for you in your own kind of spiritual life and vocational journey that those things go together for you? Absolutely. Um for me, creating brings me the most life, you know, creating something new, acting, writing, bringing something to life that wasn't there, um, creating beauty, which reveals God in some way, trying to get it truths that a religious doctrine cannot encapsulate a different kind of truth about the way humans actually are, the way life actually is the inner feelings and dynamics of human life. It's another truth that um, it's, yeah, it's a joy to bring about. So absolutely. The divine so so what, what do you do at America? What does the poetry editor do? Well, poetry editor is part of my duties, but that's my main, well, that's my title anyway. So basically you curate the poetry. You, you put up a poem every issue, which is twice a month for the whole year um, and then twice an issue, two times an issue in, 
literary issues we have in the spring and the fall. So basically 30 poems or so um, each year. And I solicit most of them I get over the transom, as they say, people just send them in. And I also try to solicit more diverse poetry, poetry poets with, um, you know, veteran poets with an amazing track record, prize winning people. So we've got people who've been published for the first time and people who are national poet laureates, you know, um, on, so I want to have that kind of diversity. Um, and, and then I'm a staff writer. So I write things, um, usually kind of spiritual reflections, uh, having to do with like joining the, I wrote a piece about joining the Jesuits, um, about going down to ice and working to release a, uh, a woman who's or work, working to get citizenship for someone or about, um, you know, any number of, any number. I, wrote, I have one coming out about liturgy and priests and liturgy. So, so I'm a staff writer and uh, editor. And what other, uh, what other things have you done in your artistic career? You mentioned kind of writing plays and yeah, I've had a number of plays produced um, and uh, acted uh, a lot of in, a lot of Shakespeare and in my own work. Um, I really like doing classical theater, um, so yeah, I've done a lot of Shakespeare and and lately more of my own work or putting up my own work or having other people act in it. Um, I did a play back in my hometown of Omaha with my brother. We each played four characters in this eight character play. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm got a play that I'm moving forward through the, <clears throat> through the stages of New York theater. I'm trying to get directors to look at it. And so, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, again, for, for joining us and best of luck in your con continued work at America and ministry and writing. And uh, again, just really love the, uh, the piece on Amazon and uh, keep that good stuff coming for us to, to chew on and uh, have a good uh, day of the religious brother this coming Wednesday, whether or not <laughs> you knew right. that. May no, I did. Absolutely. May day. Wait, day of the, right. worker. Saint Joseph so, the worker. That's right. St. Joseph the worker. That's right. So, Thank you so much, Mike. It was really great to be on the, uh, the podcast. All right. Thanks, Joe. Have a good one.